Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Now, welcome back to part two of why financial therapy fails. And the first three reasons was a person doesn't want to be in therapy. Number two is a lack of skills of the therapist. Number three is a lack of understanding of what therapy is or involves. Let's get on to number four, transference or counter-transference issues. Now, transference is when the client puts a face on the therapist. So in uh, financial therapy, the client could look at the financial therapist as taking on the role of a, a father, a mother, a parent, a banker, somebody typically in their history where they have unfinished business around and they just put them in that role. I mean, this has happened to all of us, right? You meet somebody and within seconds, this person reminds me just of my rotten Uncle Charlie. And all of a sudden, we have filled out the... um checklist of everything that was wrong with Uncle Charlie has to be wrong with this person. Transference happens a lot in therapy. And so therapists and financial therapists are on the uh, outlook for this and are are trained in um, addressing this or being, being aware of it. So I don't want you, if you're a consumer, listening to this to think, oh my God, I've got to be careful not to do transference. No, it's very, very common. I would not worry about that. I mean, that's in a way part of what therapy is all about, is learning to identify when transference is happening, when I'm putting uh, someone's face, uh, oftentimes a parent is a very popular face to, to put on somebody. And it can happen negatively the way I just described. It can happen positively. Oh, my therapist reminds me of this wonderful man that I once was in love with. And we can have all sorts of positive projection onto the therapist as well. Countertransference is when the therapist puts a face on the client. Now, This is more problematic, right? Because as a client, you can't expect this to happen in the same way that a therapist can expect a client to to put a face on them. Countertransference can really mess up therapy and really mess up financial therapy because the therapist can no longer, the term is hold the space, you know, for the client. What does that mean? 
It means that the therapist will be of limited value when they put a face on their client. And why does a therapist put a face on their client? Okay, their client reminds them of somebody, right? And they do all sorts of projection in a nanosecond. And that means that the therapist has some unfinished business somewhere. Does this happen? Yes. Yes, it happens all the time. And financial therapists do, or I will use the should word, should do, a lot of their own personal work on their money issues. And I would say all relationship issues, all issues need to be addressed by a therapist. But especially financial issues, right? If they have thoughts of what it means to be rich or they were wounded by somebody that had money or thoughts of what it is to be poor or opinions about saving and not saving and just areas in their life where they haven't looked at their own issues. These will be projected onto the client and could come out as um, being confrontive, could come out as advice. I mean, they can come out in all sorts of ways. I once took a um, class in uh, group therapy from uh, the American Group Therapists, uh, Group Psychotherapists Association. Uh, it was kind of fun. It was a two-day class, and at the end of two days, I I uh, told everybody I wasn't a therapist, <laughs> and uh, I, I outed myself. And obviously, you didn't need to be a therapist to be taking it, but almost everybody but me was. And I remember the instructor, I was so impressed when he said at some point in time during the two days, if you want to be successful in this business, and I was like, this is the first therapist I've ever heard call their therapy practice a business. I loved it. You have got to do your own counter-transference work. It is the number one predictor of being a successful therapist. So it's a big deal. And if you are going to a therapist for financial therapy, you've got to be certain that that therapist has done their counter-transference work on money. And I don't know how you determine all that, but you definitely need to have a conversation with them and asking them, or how's your relationship with money? And I'm, I'm turning right now to get a book. It was Conscious Finance. And I know we had a, a page in there on how to interview a therapist. Here it is. Page uh, 240. Now, this book is well over 10 years old. And there were no financial therapists back then when I wrote this with uh, Kathleen Fox. But some of the things that I suggest is you ask them about their typical client. You know, is their typical client, do they do financial therapy? Uh, ask them about their education, especially their financial education. 
about their process, what a typical session's like. Ask them what interior work they've done. What courses, what workshops, what have you done specifically to address your relationship with money? Uh, and ask them, what is your relationship with money? Ask them what their primary money scripts are. What are their uh, problematic financial behaviors? We've talked about this on the podcast. We've gone through what those behaviors are. If they're clueless in this area, that would be a, a red flag. So those are just some things that come to mind. Now, obviously, it's best if you can engage a financial therapist that is certified, certified financial therapist. Um, that will be helpful. But you, you really need to ascertain what countertransference work the therapist has done. Number five, a reason why therapy may fail and specific financial therapy is that the client leaves financial therapy too soon. This is a big one. Change usually doesn't happen quickly and uh, especially around money. I've had clients that have been engaging in some form of financial therapy for years that haven't made a huge amount of progress toward their, their goal. So change, and any change, doesn't happen quickly. The change in therapy that would happen quickly, I would suggest to you, is cognitive change. And that's where the client just needs more information on how money works. Like, oh, you can't spend more than comes in. Got it. I'll, I'll slash this, this, and this. Problem solved. Or, oh, I need to be saving much more for my retirement. 500 a month isn't much. I'll start saving 2000 Got it. That type of change, and I don't have research for this, but I'm saying that it works in 20% of the cases, 80% of the cases, it goes much deeper. Most people seeking out financial therapy have already tried reading themselves to financial health, and it hasn't worked, or tried to change their behavior, and it hasn't worked. Changing a behavior, uh, and especially a financial behavior, isn't easy. It takes time, sometimes a long time. And to that end, financial therapy can be expensive. So especially if you're having money problems and especially if you're having cash flow problems and then you, you want to get financial therapy, uh, in the short term that actually makes all the problems worse because in the short term, you're going to have to spend more, even though in the long term, financial therapy, therapy can be the uh, best financial investment a person has ever made. But oftentimes, it means spending thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars to eventually turn that into hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. And of course, there's no guarantee that the financial therapy is going to work for all the reasons we're talking about. And I have found that of the clients 
that have financial therapy clients that have left me often leave when they really get to a new level of uncovering difficult emotions, uh, vulnerable parts of themselves, and I have asked speak, they're getting to exiles, things that uh, are really at the core of the financial behavior, but sometimes don't have anything directly to do with the financial behavior there. And the behavior is symptomatic of the underlying wounding, wounding the underlying trauma, which we've talked a lot about. And it just becomes overwhelming to the person. And it's interesting, uh, as a financial therapist, I have a supervisor, uh, which is a therapist who meets with me, to where I, I learn things that I can improve upon and they're doing everything in the terms of consulting with me around my particular practice. And my, my supervisor, I had a client just disappear. Emailed them, no response, just disappeared. And I was just kind of shattered by that. And in so many words, she kindly told me, Ricky, you better get used to it that almost all of my clients just disappear. They just ghost you. And it is usually when they hit something, uh, some circumstance where they, it's just too overwhelming and they don't want to continue. I find that as a financial therapist kind of sad uh, because I think most financial therapists really care about their clients. They really are there to help them. They really are invested in their clients' healing and, and in their financial success. So it's, it can be difficult for a, a therapist when a, a client just leaves with no, no closure. And um, But that's one of the big reasons. And I think... Maybe I'd put that at number two, that therapy fails is because when that extra, that extra ounce of courage was needed, a person just becomes hopeless and overwhelmed. And I want to tell you that is in every person in therapy is going to hit that and probably hit that time more than once. Nobody said Financial therapy. Number six is when the client is withholding thoughts, feelings, and information. Uh, as I've said, there's usually a lot of shame in seeking out financial therapy. and Shame is usually what keeps a person from coming. So it's there. And there's often shame in even disclosing to the therapist some of the, the most core issues that might be really important for the therapist to know. So it's really important that a financial therapist has all of the information. And that includes all of the financial information. Now you might say, well, duh, 
<laughs> who wouldn't give their financial therapist all of the financial information? I want to suggest to you that giving financial information is harder than giving emotional information uh, or even sexual information uh, because of the shame attached to it, because of the fear that they will be judged or thought of less than. And there's, there's so many potential examples of this, but let me give you an example, of, say, of a, a man who sought out financial therapy to understand why he was experiencing so much anxiety around his cryptocurrency holdings. And if you know cryptocurrency, I personally have a hard problem calling that an investment. It's more of a speculation. It moves like crazy between, I'm going to say, November, December of 2021 and, and uh, the spring of 2022, uh, cryptocurrency lost half of its value. The same thing can, can happen with the stock market. So in exploring that, it almost felt that there, there was something else that was uh, not mentioned. And um, what he never revealed to the financial therapist, is that he borrowed 100% of what he put into cryptocurrency on SBA, Small Business Association loan, for his business. And rather than use the money in the business, used it to buy cryptocurrency, which fell by 50% eventually. That's important information. I recently uh, heard of a... Um, planner that was working with a client and they, the client had uh, taken $10,000 to trade on his own in uh, like a brokerage account. And this is not, this is not unusual for uh, clients to want to do that. And uh, they were going over his financial statement and uh, the financial planner said, how about the $10,000 in your uh, trading account? And the client said, don't want to talk about that. And the planner said, well, at that time, the market was down. Well, and the, and the planner assumed that meant that the, <laughs> he had lost everything, which is probably more than normal outcome. And the planner was telling me that the client said, um, no, no, I, I'm, it's, it's actually gained. And the planner's a little confused by this, like it's gained. Yeah. He says, well, Fie says, I haven't told you about this. It's uh, it's worth $500,000. And the planner's just like, okay. And clearly the client's distraught. He's like, well, so tell me more. Like, what's the problem? The client is, well, it was worth $2 million, and it's fallen to a million, and I just can't stand it, and all the remorse, and why didn't I sell? Finally, that was the information that put a light on why this $10,000 account was causing him so much grief. So withholding 
thoughts, feelings, and information. Information, And that can also be withholding uh, thoughts and feelings about the therapy process and about the, the therapist. Number seven is not a good personality or gender fit. Regardless of the skill level and personality, it needs to be a, a fit. And that's regardless of the amount of work that the therapist has done on themselves or the client has done. There's got to be a good interpersonal fit. So the client's trust in the therapist is really important. Sometimes people can have feel safer with a specific gender, whether it's male, female, LGBTQ. All of this can enter in to uh, it being a good personality fit. And it needs to be a good personality fit for the therapist as well. And that can uh, also include uh, frequency of meetings too. Number eight is there's no definition of what success is going to look like. When one says therapy is not successful, it, it needs to be clear of what, what did success look like. For example, if a financial therapy client had a goal to go from overspending to fully funding their 401k, and they only got to funding 50% of it, does that mean therapy was unsuccessful? Well, the goal wasn't reached, but was it unsuccessful? So usually success is on a continuum. Also, if it wasn't successful, does this mean there's more work to be done? That because there's no definition of what the contract is, what we're going to measure success by, how can we know that there's more work to be done? So it can be a, a situation of a glass being half full. The other thing that's really interesting with financial therapy and where it differs a little bit from traditional therapy is it is much easier to measure success in financial therapy because you can judge the outcome financially. They're measurable. I remember uh, Dr. Ted Klontz saying that was the one thing he found that he really liked about doing financial therapy is you could clearly see if there was success. So um, this is a, an important. Number nine is that the client needs a different form of therapy. There is a number of different modalities used by therapists. And I'm talking about on the mental health side. Some of the more popular are psychodynamic, behavioral, cognitive, humanistic, and integrative, which is a blend of all the other ones I just went through. And then within each of these are submodalities of specialization. For example, in psychodynamic is where internal family systems therapy would fall. But that, that can be much different from other types of psychodynamic therapists. So no therapist or financial therapist is a specialty in every modality. And not every modality is a fit for every client. And even to make it a little more complex for financial therapists, every financial therapist has varying degrees of financial training, as I said on the last podcast. Some can be specialists in cash flows and budgeting, others in complex estate planning. Some can be CFPs. Some are more uh, in the ca in the cash flow, say, arena. Some financial therapists can have a master's in 
uh, clinical uh, mental health counseling and others not have a master's like myself. Uh, even though I am a certified um, IFS practitioner, that's my modality. That's my specialty. I am not going to use uh, gestalt therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, other modalities. And uh, a modality, one modality doesn't fit everybody. So this puts a lot of responsibility onto a client to interview financial therapists to be clear of their specialty in finance and financial planning, what their training is there, and what their training is on the therapeutic side. That's that's a lot of due diligence that needs to be done. Finally, the reason financial therapy fails is it's unaffordable. Now, this is almost an oxymoron when applied to financial therapy, right? But unfortunately, financial therapy is expensive. And it's expensive when you consider that it's almost never covered by insurance. And it's also not uh, subsidized by any government agency that I know of. And it takes more training to be a financial therapist. You've got to have the financial planning training. You've got to have the mental health training. So costs can range from $150 to $600 an hour, depending on your location, depending on the expertise of the financial therapist. Some financial therapists will require that you do at least six sessions before judging the, the progress. And if they're $250 an hour and uh, you go 90 minutes, you can easily have two to $3,000 invested just at the, at the get-go. If financial therapy is unaffordable to you, consider finding a financial therapist that does groups because groups can be half the cost often of one-on-one uh, -on -one therapy or look for an online therapist that may be a little more reasonable. So, so next time you hear someone or yourself saying therapy failed, financial therapy failed, it invites a deeper conversation. There's a lot of reasons, nuances to explore. Efficient and effective financial therapy is about doing the hard work to increase emotional and financial well-being. It takes courage my experience is that if a person's ready and willing to do the hard work, be open with their therapist, persist during the times that they want to quit, they will usually witness significant and progress toward emotional and financial well-being. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.